Titus uh, gave us a list of passages of Scripture that we might draw from for our meditation this morning. I don't know what the other two have chosen, uh, whether we've chosen the same Scripture or not, but uh, I, I have a few that I'm going to share with you. It was 40 years ago that while serving as principal of Western Mennonite High School, uh, Annabelle and I felt a need for a break. And so we decided to write to the Eastern Mennonite Missions and say, we'd like to uh, serve with the mission board for a couple of years. They got back to us and said, uh, Somalia seems to be the right spot for you. So we went to Somalia. And I learned something in Somalia that I had not really known fully before. And the verse I'm going to tap into for that particular uh, vignette is this. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, do those whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered them from lands from the east and from the west and from the north and the south. This is written during a time when the Jews were scattered uh, in Babylon and wanted to be redeemed. They wanted to return to the homeland. And so this was their heart's cry. As I think back on Somalia and working with young fellows and leading them in Bible studies and a number of them coming to faith in Christ as Savior, I think particularly of one young man actually who had come to Christ before we got there. His name was Ahmed Haile. And upon returning to Western Mennonite again to serve as a principal, uh, we invited Haile to come and complete his senior year at the high school. So he came and uh, found that a very, very meaningful year and uh, positioned himself for being admitted to college. And he entered Goshen College then that fall and uh, began majoring in peace studies. And following his uh, work at Goshen College, he enrolled at the Associated Mennonite Biblical Seminary and, and studied peace. Well, highly felt as though that uh, biblical call to peace really was drawing him back to his home country to work with warring clans and tribes in the country to try as much as possible to lead them to a sense of peace. So he did return. And uh, he, prior to that, had married and had uh, three children, I believe. But Haile went back alone to the capital city of Mogadishu, and he was leading a peace seminar in a house in the city. And while doing that, while working with these clans, these uh, warring clans, someone threw a grenade into the house and blew his leg off, or, or nearly so. Uh, and so someone cut the rest of his leg off and ran off of the leg, and Haile said, stop. I, I don't want you to do that. And say, why? Well, I have $300 buried in my shoe. You may have the leg, but I want my $300. Uh, so they, they brought his $300 back. Now, uh, he uh, uh, developed gangrene in the leg, and it appeared as though he was going to die. But he was flown to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and his life was miraculously saved. Uh, just uh, a year or two ago, a highly uh, developed uh, cancer and he called for David Shank, who had served in Somalia with him and us. And he said, David, I, I want to tell my story to you, a uh, story of God's faithfulness and, and my story of coming to Jesus. And in my story, I want to say this. I came from a very devout Muslim family where I learned about God. 
And the Quran directed me to read the Holy Scriptures of the Jews and Christians, the Old Testament and New Testament. So I started reading and I found out some things new about Jesus. And I decided that the Quran really pointed me to a, a more full understanding of Jesus. And so I came to Jesus as my Lord and Savior and was baptized in the Indian Ocean. And, and that was a turning point for me. Uh, this book is off the press. It's called Tea Time in Mogadishu, the capital city. I hope it's in our library. If it's not, it should be. But for me, this captures something of essence of what it means to be redeemed from the north and the south and the east and the west and the gospel being a cross-cultural gospel. So I wanted to share that little vignette with you uh, some 40 years ago. A second and final vignette, uh, I've decided to use the theme of the whirlwind from Job 38, uh, referencing some of my experience here 30 years ago. We came to East Chestnut Street 30 years ago to serve in the pastorate. And uh, it was a calling. We felt it was the right thing to do to work here along with working at the Eastern Mennonite Missions. And uh, the, the, the concept of the whirlwind is sort of uncanny. It, it caught my attention because there was a sense in which some whirlwind began to occur at East Chestnut Street in the 1980s. And one of the whirlwinds was for, for the history of East Chestnut Street and Lancaster Conference, it would be entirely unfitting for any person to stand behind this pulpit unless you were ordained. If you were ordained, you could occupy this sacred space. Uh, well, at that time, the only persons uh, that were ordained were, were men. And, and at that time, it, it really, uh, I was strongly urged that, that this space should not be reserved according to gender, but it ought to be available according to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, irrespective as to whether it is men or women. And so in the 1980s, women began to preach here. Now, it caused a whirlwind. There was not a vindictive spirit on the part of anybody, but there were a number of people who were deeply disturbed that this space would be occupied by women. And, and a number of them would invite me to their home and, and open the scriptures. And I recall one home in particular said, women are to be silent in the church. And how can a woman be silent if they get up here and, and begin preaching? Well, I, I tried to work with that gently, uh, but, but a number of persons, well-meaning people, committed people, said we can no longer attend East Chestnut Street because we are being disobedient to the Bible. And so a number of them left, not vindictively, but, but they wanted to leave. Others who were uncomfortable with that stayed and, and, and continued to worship with us. One dear sister some time ago said to me, Glenn, I used to say women dare not preach. But as I've heard the testimony of one woman in particular who began preaching in this pulpit, I began to say, if the Holy Spirit calls a woman to preach, who am I to resist God? And so I am not going to resist that, even though that would not have been my preference. Well, I really do think that God does speak through the whirlwind. Whirlwind, though, has a way of shifting things. Uh, thing, things are really not the same after a whirlwind comes. There's a shifting. And uh, I, I really think that there has been a shifting uh, here, and, and I, I believe for the glory of God and for the expansion of the kingdom, uh, that it is wonderful, absolutely wonderful, that women can stand in this pulpit and preach. 
Don, I'm awfully glad that you can stand in this pulpit and preach. God bless you. Keep a preaching, sister. Hello. I'm going to be drawing mostly from Mark and somewhat from the Psalms. We were at the beach this week. Like many people there, we went swimming. The waves were not massive or spectacular, but they were fun. The tide was coming in, and so we had to move around to catch the waves at the right spot. However, there were moments of miscalculation. Maybe I rode the wrong wave in. Maybe I was distracted by something else, or maybe I was lulled by the sequence of extremely boring waves. Whatever the reason, I wouldn't see that next one, the one that was twice as big as the last one, the one that would break slightly later than the other ones, the one with just a little more power behind it. Well, if I did see it, it was a bit too late. It's hard to run in the water, especially in the sand. Suddenly the wave would break, pulling me and everything in its path down with it. Then there were moments of panic while the wave held me down, rolling over me, keeping me away from the air that was just a few inches away. The harsh sand and the small rocks would scrape and scratch. Finally, the wave would lose force and allow me to escape, standing up as fast as my lack of breath would allow. Then it was decision time. Did I turn back to the dry sand and the plethora of beach umbrellas and safety? Or did I go back out and wait for the next one? They had, my decision had to be made fast. The next wave was a monster and I didn't want to get pulled under again. The only times I've really ever seen the ocean are the ones during calm, cloudless days when there's never a chance for a storm or hurricane, when everything is supposed to be totally safe. But there are still those moments of terror and panic when the world is suddenly full of rushing, foaming salt water. There is no air to breathe, and I can feel my skin being literally sanded off while the wave contorts my body into weird shapes. I've seen movies where storms at sea are simulated and read books that describe a truly violent ocean, but I've never seen the real thing, never felt it. I could only use my limited experience to imagine how terrified the disciples must have been in their tiny boat in the middle of a watery chaos. How strange it must have seemed to the disciples that Jesus didn't seem to feel afraid at all, that he was sleeping. So the disciples shook him awake. I don't know what the disciples thought would, this would accomplish since they were so surprised by Jesus' subsequent actions. Then Jesus stood up and commanded the wind to stop and the sea to be still, and everything was calm. It is at this moment, when everything has been calmed, that the disciples suddenly wonder who or what Jesus actually is. If Jesus can control the sea and the wind and can save a small group of thoroughly demanding men, what else can God do? What else is Jesus willing to save us from? People cannot control the ocean. We have tried for thousands of years. Engineers build dikes and seawalls. We build ever more sophisticated ocean transportation and even build whole cities below sea level. But something happens, something like Katrina, rising ocean levels from melting ice caps, a particularly violent tsunami, and this wipes out our human efforts. It was this kind of thing that Jesus calmed. Jesus had power over something that is often symbolic of human limits. It was out of the violent ocean that God rescued terrified sailors in the Psalms. And it was with God's help that Paul got through his many difficulties as listed in Corinthians. And with this power, God, through Jesus, has done something remarkable for us. 
not just distant figures in a time when God cared, but now when God is still active. Just as people have always loved and feared the ocean, so people have always loved and feared God. Just as the ocean can seem to be filled with anger and destruction, so God can be filled with anger against the sin and brokenness in our world. But the psalmist indicated that God has mercy on the terrified sailors and rescues them and brings them home. And in Mark, Jesus calms the storm and brings the disciples safely to land. In the same way, God is merciful and shows love for us. God came down to us and saved us from the brokenness in which we live. God calms the sea in our storm-tossed lives and brings us safely home. When Titus assigned us the passages for this morning, I had to start by doing what any good seminary student would do and go to my commentaries. After all, I now have a huge collection of massively big books sitting on my bookshelf, and this felt like the first real chance to put them to some good use. So thanks, Titus. <laughs> I'd like to look more at the Mark passage and its implications for trusting God in the midst of discomfort that can come from following God's call to meet others where they are. In Mark 35, it tells us that the boat has embarked on a trip to the other side. Mark frames this trip as a trip from danger, from safety to danger, from the security of the disciples' home place to another country, that of the Gerasenes. Ian Wallace, an Anglican priest, writes that readers immediately sense that this trip with Jesus is an act of faith of trusting obedience in response to God's call. There's certainly vulnerability involved for the disciples. Men who have worked up until now as fishermen are now becoming ministers to people, which I imagine fell out of their depth, maybe even out of their realm of influence. Yet their priority is on obeying and trusting over fully understanding or developing a proper skill set first. Usually when I read this passage, and I get to the part where the disciples become afraid of the storm, I focus on their lack of faith. And in that moment, the disciples did choose fear instead of faith. But I often neglect to see the faith it took for them to get in the boat with Jesus and to commit to following him in the first place, to following him into the unknown, the sometimes uncomfortable and scary places outside their comfort zone. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul described suffering, pain, and sacrifice as an opportunity to receive God's grace. He speaks with confidence that although we experience hunger, hard work, sleeplessness, troubles, the unknown, and hardships, we have hope that gives us the strength to continue on in our work. What hope? Psalm 107 gives us a glimpse. God's love, which endures forever. God's redemption through the cross and God's presence in the midst of troubles. My attention is grabbed by Paul's description of suffering as an opportunity to receive God's grace in verse 1. I'm naturally an anxious person. I easily feel overwhelmed by the trouble I see in the world, in the lives of my former students, and in the broken educational system in our country. It often feels like it would be easier to just run away from hurt suffering, and brokenness. Yet as Shane Claiborne writes, there's so much in our culture that teaches us to move away from suffering and to move away from people who don't look like us and to move out of neighborhoods where there's high crime and things like that. And yet the heart of the gospel 
is that God hears suffering, enters into suffering. Part of the countercultural call of the gospel is to move closer to suffering rather than away from it. Our Lord teaches us not just to embrace suffering rather than fear it, but to enter into suffering and to identify and be with others who are suffering. What does it look like to enter into others' suffering and identify with their pain? First of all, I think it requires us to view hurt, pain, and discomfort in a new way, as an opportunity to receive God's grace, and as an opportunity to understand and identify with others who are suffering in a deeper way. Second, I think we can learn a lot about how to relate with others in their suffering by looking at the example of Jesus throughout the Gospels. When encountering people who had deep needs and brokenness, Jesus did not run away. He was present with these people, friends, strangers, and street people alike. He listened to them, often patiently and at the expense of his schedule. He hurt with them. As one of my professors, Ronald Sider, said to a group of us students who were feeling discouraged about the brokenness in our world and what we should do, sometimes you must cry first. He told us, at times, Tears are precisely the appropriate response to a broken world. But then, Jesus went on to speak words of encouragement to them and cared for their family's physical and spiritual needs. I'd like to leave us with a challenge to think about what this means for us as individuals and as a church. How can we enter into the suffering of others around us? Who among us is suffering without hope? Who are these people in our community our neighborhoods, our prisons, our own church? How can we enter into their pain and speak words of encouragement and life into their families and their spirits? Will this require me to befriend an immigrant, someone who attends our community meals, a child, a neighbor, a new member of our congregation? How will we take Jesus' call to embrace suffering rather than run away from it and use it as an opportunity to enter into each other's suffering.